What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Trending Now podcast. I am your host, Fiyi Kundare, and today I'm here with Professor Jennifer Noble. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Trump's indictment, uh, what he's charged with, whether or not he could be found guilty based on the evidence. Um, but before we get started, I want to give Professor Noble a chance to introduce herself, uh, give us a brief uh, summary of her background. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to be here today. It is um, very nice to be back at the State Hornet. Um, I am a professor in the Criminal Justice Division, and I'm also an attorney, and uh, that's how I came to teach at Sac State. Um, I teach classes on white-collar crime, criminal procedure, and American courts, law of evidence, sort of the criminal law classes. And um, prior to coming here to Sac State to teach, I was an attorney in private practice, and I practice mostly in federal court, and a lot of my cases concerned white-collar crime. It's the area that I, I study and I research in. Uh, prior to that, um, I was a journalist, and prior to that, I was a student here at Sac State, and I was news editor at one point of the State Hornet. So it's very nice to be back here today. Thank you for the invitation. No problem. Pleasure's all mine. Um, so the first question I have is, uh, can you give us like a brief summary of what Trump is being charged with and how many years he's been he's he's looking at if he's found like guilty of the of the things he's being charged with? Sure. So I think it's important to start with what the charges are and um, not worry as much about what the sentence might be because we don't have any idea yet of what the evidence is against him because everything at this point is just allegations. Um, so he's been charged in New York State courts with. Um, 34 counts of a violation of um, New York Penal Code 175.05, and that's a misdemeanor, and it is a, um, it's for falsifying business records. Um, he's been charged as, um, with these charges as a felony because the prosecutor is also alleging that he falsified these business records in order to commit another crime or to cover up another crime. That sounds similar to the kind of uh, things that I researched myself when I was looking at the case is that he falsified the, the uh, business document and then they said it's uh, the 34 counts, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's the same thing but done over and over again because they said that uh, because he lied on the business document, it caused other people to lie. And then the, the, the second one is that uh, he did that to defraud the, the public because of the election and so... Uh, the, the the second question I'll have is that um, based on the analysis of the, the crimes that he's committed, mm -hmm. do you do you think that uh, there's a chance that he goes to jail? Do you think this is a particularly strong or uh, weak case? There's a lot of debate about that. And it's I think at this point it's really hard to say whether it's a strong case or not. Um, the, the There are two documents to, to study here, and one of them is the indictment, which just sets out the dates of the offenses and what the alleged violation of law is. And um, it's kind of dry reading. It doesn't have a lot of details. But then you also need to look at the statement of facts that they file alongside that. Um, that gives more of the story behind the charges. Um, so that's where the prosecutors are alleging what was that crime, that secondary crime that he either committed or attempted to commit uh, by the falsification of those records. So for example, uh, one of the charges relates to payments to his attorney, Michael Cohen, as reimbursement for payments that were made to Stormy Daniels. Uh, 
the prosecutor saying by falsifying those records in his own business ledgers that that was a falsification of business um, records in violation of the law. But it was done for the purpose of hiding campaign donations, or in some other respect, it was done for the purpose of aiding his campaign. Um, because it was done in the service of his campaign, there are, are reporting requirements. If When in 2016, Michael Cohen made that payment to Stormy Daniels, they're saying, well, was that then, because it was in the service of his campaign, was that a donation or a contribution to his campaign that would have to be reported as such, and it would be well over the limit <laughs> um, if it were. Um, and then there are also other implications. So if a payment that was made to Michael Cohen, um, for instance, he was he paid the $130,000 to Stormy Daniels for the um, agreement for her to you know, not tell her story. Um, this was right before the election, and so the prosecutor is saying that the benefit to Trump's campaign was that this would not come out at a really sensitive time. The election is coming up. This was in October of 2016. The election is in November. And the Access Hollywood tape with some really vulgar remarks by Trump had just broke. And so their concern, the campaign's concern, is that that's going to cause them to lose favor with women voters, uh, maybe with evangelicals. And so for because it was made in service of that, the allegation is that that was then a election donation or a, a contribution that would have to be reported. Um, to reimburse Michael Cohen, uh, the Trump organization paid him monthly invoices that he would send over the next year in order to pay him back not only for the $130,000, but also for the tax burden that he would incur, so so that he would come out with a, a net gain of $130,000. Um, they ended up paying him about twice that much. Um, so that means Michael Cohen then, when he filed his taxes for 2017, he reported that as income and paid taxes on it, which was incorrect. Um, so. There are two different tax implications there. One is that Michael Cohen then inflated his income and paid taxes on that inflated amount, which would be a false statement, even though he ended up paying more taxes. But then there's also, on the Trump Organization side, they're saying, well, this money that was spent with Michael Cohen was for legal services, which is a tax-deductible expense, um, a payment to a former mistress to cover up an affair, is not a tax-deductible uh, expense. So is what they're saying about the fact that he did that at a sensitive time, is that something that they're going off of uh, speculation? Would they have to prove that that was his specific intent to affect the election or um, as opposed to him just doing it just to keep her, keep her silent? That's a really great point because um, – they sort of anticipate that his, in the statement of the facts, they anticipate that that's going to be his defense, that he paid Stormy Daniels the money, um, and also women number one, who's listed in the statement of facts, um, that he paid them both to be quiet because he didn't want his wife or his family to know about the affairs. Um, they anticipated this in his, uh, the statement of facts on the indictment, because they note in here that the timing um, was of note. So the payment being discussed um, between Michael Cohen and Donald Trump, uh, they're alleging that they can show 
that Donald Trump said, do we need to pay her right away? If we wait till after the election, it, we won't have to pay her at all. And that means that they're anticipating being able to show it was not to keep her quiet for personal reasons, but for election purposes. I like how you broke broke those down because now we're getting into maybe what the defense is going to say against the arguments. Because when I was looking up the the charges, there were like two things, and you already touched on one of them in terms of uh, it being a misdemeanor. But the first one was that the the statute of limitations for the crimes he committed mm-hmm. uh, in the state of New York, um, and then the second one was that um, the reason why he the um, Alvin Bragg, who's the district attorney in New York, was able to bypass the fact that the that the statute may have uh, already expired was that he elevated it from a misdemeanor to uh, um, a felony alleging that um, f- the fraud and also the to conceal a larger crime. Yes. So can you just uh, touch a li- more a little bit on those things and how you know how they they work? Yeah, I think that's going to be a real a key part of the defense, and that'll be a key part early. Um, you can always file a well, you can't always win, but you can always file a motion to defense and uh, motion to dismiss in a criminal case, but they're very rarely won. Um, Usually it has to be on legal grounds. But a statute of limitations issue is a legal question and not a factual question that would need to go to a jury. Um, And so I I anticipate that will be an issue here, is that that the prosecutors have bootstrapped this into a felony in order to evade a shorter statute of limitations. And I think we will see some argument on that. Okay. Do you think that the fact that this is happening in New York, I don't know... uh, maybe not just for Trump, but in general for criminal cases, does the location of where like a trial like this, does that affect the chances of, uh, or does that increase the chances of him being sentenced, um, given that most of New York, uh, they didn't vote for uh, Trump, you know, does that affect anything in terms of the jury? And does the, because Alvin Bragg was also on video before he became district attorney, he was like, that was one of his goals was to go uh, after Trump. Does that, does that affect how the judge is going to, to look at the case? I don't know that it'll affect how the judge looks at the case. I think it may, I think Trump's defense may raise an issue of whether or not this is some sort of vindictive prosecution. Um, I think that's really a difficult standard to make. Vindictive prosecution is when the prosecutors are retaliating against a, a defendant because of their exercise of a constitutional right. So if somebody um, goes to trial and is acquitted after a jury trial and then the prosecutor charges them with something else, it might look like because they they, um, asserted their right to go to trial and they won that this was in retaliation for exercising that constitutional right. Um, But what the court's going to look at is was this in retaliation for Donald Trump exercising a constitutional right? And also, are there facts that would support this regardless? And if there are facts that would support um, the charges, then it's probably not going to be seen as vindictive prosecution. Um, So that's one issue. And the other that you raised is about whether or not he can have a fair and impartial jury uh, in the district where this was filed, which is Manhattan. And, um, you know, I think that's going to also be a a fight. Um, I'm not the political expert on this, but I do understand that he did not carry that district, um, that voters overwhelmingly voted democratically in that last election. 
And um, I, I don't know that you know, anybody who is going to come into that jury box is going to be a blank slate. Um, everybody has heard of Donald Trump. Everybody has heard of this case. Um, jurors don't have to be empty vessels. They just have to be fair and impartial and keep an open mind uh, to receive the information that has been vetted through the courts and, and see that evidence that's admitted and make a decision on how the law applies to those facts. Okay. That makes sense. Um so in the case that he is maybe found guilty and he does go to jail, is there uh, is it still possible that he would be president? Like, can someone who has been convicted be still run for president? Boy, that's a good question, and I just don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> um, I would I would say that in in a lot of business cases where you have convictions for falsification of business records, I would want to look at what other people have been. Uh, sentenced to in those cases. Um, there are a lot of these cases brought. These are not uncommon cases. It's not like Alvin Bragg's office reached for some dusty old statute and um, you know had to dredge it up in order to find a case. They routinely charge people in New York State under this statute. I think looking at other cases and asking um, which are similar on the facts, you're not going to have another president of the United States, obviously, uh, but look at the dollar amount. Um, look at what the underlying, the, that secondary offense was. And um, look at what the sentences are. Um, I don't have that information because I don't practice in New York, and I'm definitely not an expert in, in New York state law. But these look like corporate offenses where individuals are not going to be sentenced to lengthy prison sentences, um, but more likely could be sentenced to fines, probation, or short uh, sentences. I'm, I'm guessing that this the case is also going to probably drag on for for a while. I don't know how the process is going to work. I don't know how long these trials are, but I'm assuming that, that that's probably going to happen. Um, I believe this will be. I think it might it might drag on. Um, just looking at other court cases that Donald Trump has been involved in, he does tend to sort of delay them by appealing everything, um, you know, which is his right. Um, that could cause delays. The prosecutor is now going to turn over all the information that they have to the defense so that they can investigate and mount a defense, and that takes time. Um, with white-collar cases, that can be um, voluminous business records. Um, of course, the records here are from Trump's, Trump's own company, so he should presumably know what's in there, and um, that might shorten it. You know, I think the only other thing I would add is that... Um, you know, these are only allegations at this point, that the burden is entirely on the prosecutor to bring the evidence to support their claims. And, uh, you know, people who are interested should read the source documents as much as possible and not the interpretations of those. You know, uh, don't take my word for it. Go look at the statement of facts. Go look at the indictment yourselves. They're readily available. And I always um, tell my students to look for those documents. Uh, rather than, a, you know, an interpretation of that. Yes, I, I, I agree. I, I took a criminal justice class uh, my first semester here, and that's on a, every, on a normal day, that's how I am. I always go out of my way to look at things to get myself as informed as possible on what things are. I also I read from, like, what both sides are saying. So if there's, if there's two different sources, um, maybe they're um, 
reasoning for why something is happening or their their conclusion may differ based on their ideology if there's if the foundation of what they're saying is the same thing in terms of the facts of the the case then i'm like okay this is what it is okay this is opinion this is opinion this is fact and then you can kind of navigate your way through these things that's how i kind of do it and uh, i took the criminal justice class helped me do that having to look up a lot of data different interpretations of the same data mm-hmm. all those things matter um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think students should go out of their way, research these things yourself, um, get knowledge, and uh, yes, don't uh, get sucked in into the <laughs> ideological um, battles and then forget the, what the case is actually about. Yeah, and you know, I think when you do that, when you look at what the statute actually requires, um, it says an individual is guilty of falsifying business records in the second degree when, with intent to defraud, he makes or causes a false entry in the business records of an enterprise. Uh, there are some other, uh, you know, elements that could be met there, but that's one that they're singling out. Um, and as an individual is guilty of falsifying business records in the first degree, when he commits the crime of falsifying business records in the second degree, and when his intent is to to defraud, um, includes an intent to commit another crime or aid or conceal the commission thereof. So that's exactly what the law is. And now what the process is going to be doing is looking to see, has the government gathered facts that meet those requirements, those elements of the, that criminal statute to see if if they can make their case. It's a high burden. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and I expect this is a case that's you know, not going to settle with a plea agreement. Well, we will all be, uh, we'll all be watching closely at the case. Um, I want to thank Professor Noble again for coming on and talking about this uh, with me. Is there any uh, information you want to leave for the students, any way to, for them to reach out to you, like your office hours, uh, where, where that is? Um, absolutely. Students can always stop by my office. I'm in Alpine Hall uh, 209, and uh, my office hours are Tuesday, Thursdays, 1030 to noon. Um, if you are interested in law school, I am a pre-law advisor, and I would be happy to help you through that journey. And... Um, I have a ton of information on that as well. All righty, guys, you heard it here. Um, I want to thank the audience again for listening. Uh, This was a nice podcast, very informative. And um, until next time, guys, bye-bye.